I want to thank all the labor unions here in Dane County that help keep SlyOffice.com up and going so you keep up to date. Whether it be the Madison Firefighters, Local 311, or the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, or our friends at Madison Teachers Incorporated. These are some of the most active local unions who organize, 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 and constantly stand up for workers. Thank you from SlyOffice.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SlyOffice.com. Joining us now, our friend Peter Rickman from Milwaukee. MASH, Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. Peter, it's been a long time. Thanks for coming on. I'm so glad to be back on here with you, Sly. It's a beautiful day in America. So isn't it interesting that the most anti-labor member of the United States Supreme Court, Samuel Alito, would be the person writing at least the draft opinion that is so harshly destructive to women's choice in America? You know, I think there are some patterns here we should discuss when it comes to democracy. I think, first of all, we need to contest a basic fundamental premise of what you just said, though. How is Samuel Alito just assumed to be the most anti-worker, anti-union member of the Supreme Court? I mean, he's got some good competition there. Uh, Ginny Thomas's husband, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, that one, uh, he's, he's, he's no friend of the working Oh, he isn't? Woman. Oh. No, no, no. Well, no. all right. At least the one that's on the record the most. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Being proactively telegraphing to different right-wing organizations to send him cases so they can strike down workers' rights. Yeah, yeah. What did they used to call him, Scalito? Because he was just like a little puppy dog uh, for for Antonin Scalia's uh, yeah. With, without all the the sort of at least Fourth Amendment protection charms that uh, that uh, <laughs> right, Scalia had uh, like a little tiny virtue in there, but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, protecting the Fourth Amendment is not a tiny virtue. It's actually good on that. But yes, Alito is a monster. So, uh, as we try to explain labor rights to people in democracy, isn't this just a great example to point out that the people that tend to be anti democratic authoritarian are anti labor and anti choice? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because this is obviously the kind of Supreme Court, uh, oh, I guess it's not even a decision, but draft opinion, that is absolutely going to be at the center of the American political scene, at least, you know, for the next period of time until uh, the next uh, political crisis does emerge, although this one may just keep coming back up again and again and again. Um, but it demonstrates the sort of unity of the political project of the right. And, you know, it's it's sort of been understood, I think, amongst court watchers for some time that, you know, over the years, the appellate courts, the federal appellate courts, and the Supreme Court at the pinnacle of that have grown increasingly pro-business, anti-worker, anti-union. And of course, over that same period of time, our federal appellate courts <clears throat> have become uh, a bastion of assaults on fundamental rights of individuals and groups. And so I think, you know, amongst many of the lessons to be drawn from what we've seen come out of the draft opinion here, the, the Supreme Court this week, is that there is a political project of the right to tear down, you know, this idea that individuals, people, have fundamental rights 
guaranteed by government and and beyond, and that you know our government and society exists to improve the lives of regular ordinary people, whether it's you know a compromising bodily autonomy for women and you know fundamentally challenging the notion of reproductive freedom, or you know saying that corporations have rights and in fact more rights than individual or groups of individual people or groups of people. There is a political project of the right. It's been playing out at the ballot box and in the courtrooms for decades. And I think this is just one more incredibly painful punch in the face to the ordinary everyday working people that make this country go. And of course the anti democratic efforts of voting has uh swept into this as well. And it did not start with Donald Trump. If you go back to no. the interviews I did with Congressman Pocan or former representative now Judge Taylor, they would go to those ALEC conferences and they would they would directly brag about, hey, here's how we get less people to vote, or here's how we get uh, here's how we get our legislators to ignore the will of the people. They're openly advocating for that. Well, I think you know they, they again they have a collective political project that uh, has been advanced now for decades, and you, you have to give them credit. They're uh, disciplined and focused. <clears throat> you know whatever oh. debates there might play out amongst the right or this you know sort of uh, shadows on the wall of the Platonic cave of of right uh, and Republican infighting, where you know in some quarters Donald Trump is the greatest thing in the world, and in some quarters he's you know a, a threat to the the republican project you know it's, it's all just for show when really they have been advancing this this right political project for for decades here with incredible vigor and incredible success and you know they want to get rid of democracy they want to you know break down uh labor rights and, <clears throat> and worker rights and, and so on and so forth i mean you can draw a line between all these things because it is fundamentally a project against democracy, democracy in the workplace and the economy, democracy in our political process. And, and we haven't and, even and gotten not. to their, we haven't even gotten to their pernicious project of their constitutional conventions in the states. There's another, well, there's another doozy. Well, that, that's a way to lock it all in. And I think, you know, slide, I happen to be one of those crazy people that thinks that there is, you know, a right to health care, a right to a living wage, a right to uh, collective bargaining, a right to an education, a right to housing even, and that the role of government is to facilitate those individual and collective rights. Now, you look at our government today, and you see, I think, <laughs> we're, we're, a, we're actually a high-tax nation, Sly. I don't know if, if your listeners necessarily recognize that, because people are told all the time about you know the low taxes and cutting taxes and whatever, but Fundamentally, we are a high-tax nation. We have a tax burden on working people that is actually not just substantially similar to, but greater than the social democracy. Yes, and, and, Rick, and Rick Scott from Florida wants to increase that for working-class people. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's just so Kafkaesque because we pay these taxes here that right now are propping up a government whose, whose job it appears to be taking away rights, eroding democracy, funneling wealth upwards, and becoming an arms dealer, you know, essentially. Um, what what role is our federal government playing delivering on health care, delivering on education, delivering on living wage jobs? They don't do that. And so, so I think we do need to conceive of all this lie as a political project of the right. Their version of, of a good society 
is not some sort of, you know, Pollyanna-ish, limited government, high freedom, free enterprise, blah, 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 kind of thing. No, no, the role of government is actually to constrict the rights of individuals, to constrict the capacities of the society collectively, to funnel wealth upwards, to create the income inequality economy that enriches the few. And by the way, does so to, to in, in parallel, you know, limit what society is for a chosen few, and, and maybe fight a few wars on behalf of American imperialism and capitalism. Well, the tr- That's the kind of government we live with here today, and this is just the latest example of the American rights political project to create. And, and the first thing that they do, and, and, you know, we talk about democracy. Well, you know, state by state, we've been losing democracy for a very long time. There's sort of this Potemkin version of democracy where, yes, people hmm. go to the polls, but they're not really contested races. You take a state like Oklahoma that used to have a popula- a good populist streak. The first thing they did is they killed unions, right? That's, mm. a, that's the first thing they did. And they've turned it into an overwhelmingly one-party state because the first thing they did was killed unions. That's their playbook. Yeah, o- Oklahoma used to be a pretty pro-union state. Uh, used to send Democrats to the Senate. Too, Fred Harris. Fred Harris. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> And, and they, they like uh, states, uh, for example, the Dakotas also, you know, had a strong prairie populist right. tradition. And, and you can Governor. draw a literal geographic yeah. line from, you know, Alberta, Canada, Saskatchewan, uh, British Columbia, on down through Washington, Oregon, the Dakotas, Montana, into the, you know, what the, I guess what they call the American heartland, and the upper Midwest here. There was, there was a prairie populism, a sort of social democratic ethos of politics that was really about the, the the ordinary everyday working person building you know what they call the cooperative commonwealth the cooperative commonwealth federation the nonpartisan league of the dakotas now is sort of the new democratic party in canada we had the populists and the progressives here uh in wisconsin there was this really vibrant political culture of kind of a left of center thing that prioritized ordinary everyday working well you know and out of the out of that in saskatchewan was tommy douglas who founded canada's health care system he's literally the most favorite canadian of all time when when polled because he was an architect, not only of their Medicare program. Do you put him ahead or behind of Celine Dion? Where do you put that? In the... Well, although I was not a voter, because as you know, I'm not Canadian. Canadian, I'm I'm only Canadian light, being a northeastern Wisconsin person. I, I did not get a vote. I would have. I would have probably submitted a spoiled ballot because it's so hard to choose. <laughs> you know, so difficult. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the ground right now. Um, you have, uh, the work, I want to ask you about what's going on with the Paps Theater group. I was just at a, a concert at the Paps Theater the other day. As I walked in, I, I told the workers I was in full support of them. They were very happy to hear that. I don't know if many people going into the Paps say that, but what's going on with the Paps and Turner Hall and the Riverside? Can I can I give listeners just a little picture of these venues because it's it's really important I think to understand that context. These, these are some amazing historic venues uh, in Milwaukee: the Paps Theater, the Eight, Riverside, eighteen ninety two. Can you can you imagine walking in to Turner Hall and the Turner Hall Ballroom and 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 sort of being in the place where the Milwaukee Turner is the heart of the Social Democratic Party here in Milwaukee? You know. 
beat. Uh, that, that, that venue still operates today, and it's operated uh, along with uh, the aforementioned and the Colectivo backroom, soon the Miller Highlight Theater, by a set of people who are themselves part of the arts, entertainment, and culture industry. They're arts, entertainment, and culture workers, and they love these venues and what they bring to the cultural scene in Milwaukee, the music scene in Milwaukee, the entertainment scene in Milwaukee. They have come together here, and I'll give you a little background here momentarily, but they've come together here to form a union, not because they hate their jobs, they hate the work that they do, they hate their employer. No, no, no. They've come together to form a union because they love the work that they do. They love the contribution that they make, and they want to have a voice in the operation of their employer to better contribute to the arts, entertainment, and culture industries, the arts, entertainment, and culture scenes in Milwaukee. And it's really impressive to see what's happened with a workforce of mostly 20-somethings, uh, a few 30-somethings in there, um, maybe one or two a little bit older than that, but folks who really view themselves as being part of a nationwide movement to build unions, to fix workplaces that people actually like, uh, also to utterly transform workplaces that people resent, like Amazon. Um, but, you know, I think you can draw a real parallel here between what Starbucks workers nationwide are doing. So incredible, impressive, dramatic victories here. Uh, and, and that of the past theater group workers. And so the event staff, the hospitality workers, <clears throat> the box office workers there had seen what Pfizer Forum workers did. A thousand people in a very similar industry position came together, formed a union, won an industry-leading contract, and, you know, we're, we're doing some really great things. They said, we can do that, too, and we can use that model to have a voice and balance the power between our bosses and us to shape what this workplace ought to be like. And they actually started organizing slide before the pandemic and kept organizing together through the pandemic around issues that matter to them, things that they cared about. And, um, you know, as, as life started to return to a little bit more of a semblance of normal, particularly with uh, concerts coming back uh, into play at these venues, they said, yeah, we're ready to go forward with forming our union here. And it's been a really incredible campaign since then. And, and I'd love to, to tell you here that what they've done is something that's going to guarantee their victory. But the truth is, American labor law doesn't ensure that folks like this can form a union. A imagine this lie. 80% of the workers involved at Pabst Theater Group have not only signed union authorization cards, that's the legal requirement to form a union, and union authorization cards, they actually went a step further and signed union membership cards saying, you know, not only do I want to have a union and a contract, but even here in Wisconsin, a right-to-work state, I'm going to join this union and say, I'm ready to pay dues so that we have an organization. We, the workers, have an organization of, by, and for ourselves. That's a really incredible step here for folks to take, putting their faith in this vision of a balance of power between the employer and workers. So 80% of them have said this is what they want. This is what they need. And they went to the employer and said, we formed a union. 80% of us already have come together with this. We want you to recognize our union and sit down and bargain a contract. And American labor law gives the employer the choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And American labor law doesn't put that choice in the hands of workers. It actually lets the employer decide these things. So the employer here has forced the workers into this bureaucratic morass of a, of a national labor relations board that is, you know, underfunded, overworked now these days, although it's good they're overworked with all these union elections happening. 
Um, and instead of workers on April 4th saying to their employer, we formed a union, we want you to recognize us and bargain a contract, here we are now a month later, and there's not even an election scheduled yet for these workers to vote yes for their union. Again, 80% of them supported the union, and that number has grown since then. We know what the election results should be. should be union yes for these Pabstita Group workers. But employers can use delaying tactics, bureaucratic hurdles, the fundamentally antagonistic process of a yes versus no union election, and that imbalance of power that exists in every workplace to try to force workers out of making the choice of forming that union. So, you know, these workers are ready to battle their way through to the conclusion of this union election, not only to get the union yes they need to win recognition, but to go into contract bargaining where these workers can finally have a voice in their workplace so they can shape the arts, entertainment, and cultural industry workplace and the arts, entertainment, and cultural industry here in Milwaukee. Had we been able to get the Employee Free Choice Act passed, would that have taken care of that problem? First of all, how did you let me filibuster for that long slide? Jeez, I thought you were going to jump in there a couple times. No. Um, <laughs> You're much my. I'm a college dropout, okay? i just let you go. Well, I'm a law school and grad school dropout, so, you know. Uh, the Employee Free Choice Act that was, you know, on the table in 2009, and, and truly was on the table with the Democratic president, and for a moment, uh, a filibuster-proof majority of Democrats. Thank you, Arlen Specter. Um we could have passed the Employee Free Choice Act. And what would have happened, amongst so many other things, is that it would have enabled uh, what's called card check in some cases, mm-hmm. majority sign-up and others, where if a majority of workers in a workplace, in an appropriate bargaining unit, a group of people with a shared interest, when they sign union cards, they get recognized, and the employer has to sit down and bargain a contract like an adult. Um, and, and obviously that never passed. And, and I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about. Uh, you know, looking back at 2009, 2010, have the Democrats stood up and delivered for the American working class as opposed to what they did for the, you know, decade and a half before that? Maybe we wouldn't have had the wipeout of the elections in 2010 when blue-collar working class people fully abandoned the Democrats. Well, and and maybe, right, and maybe in 1994 uh, that wouldn't have happened had we uh, had the Democrats uh, with a Democratic president done NAFTA. We'll take a break. Let's just take a quick break here, and then we'll be right back. Peter Rickman with us at SliceOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit JeffsGuitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson. We love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Wachs have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers, Local 139, also Madison Teamsters, Local 695, Madison Computer Works, and Jeff's Guitar Clinic. Joining us again from MASH, Peter Rickman, 
Uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the Employee Free Choice Act, what's going on with the Pabst Theater, the, the Pabst Theater Group, the Riverside Turner Hall, that group. Let me ask you, and this is kind of a broader question, but you and I have commiserated over the years that the Democratic base was more animated by social issues, and not that they weren't important, but uh, I see a change happening where young people are really beginning to get interested in union issues, in union, you know, as opposed to General Motors or some of the old standards as far as union workers, uh, because there's issues with Starbucks and issues with Amazon and issues with other companies that are more likely to cross with millennials, that young people are getting more interested in labor issues. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what's the leading edge of the PAP Theater Group workers unionizing here. You know, these are, this is a group of 20-somethings, largely, uh, just like what we're seeing with Starbucks. And I think it's also what's driving, you know, some of the union organizing campaigns amongst Amazon workers. It's the same thing that we're seeing amongst, uh, you know, arts and culture workers, museum workers around the country are organizing, including right here in Milwaukee. Uh, it's what we've seen with, you know, the digital uh, news outlets, you know, all getting organized. You know, there's there's absolutely something in the air right now, Sly, where working class people, and, and that includes baristas just the same as as it includes, you know, someone working in an auto plant. Um, and it also includes, by the way, you know, academic workers and museum workers. Working class people are coming together saying, the only way we're going to get a fair shake is if we have the power together in a union. And it's it's incredibly exciting. Now, I don't want to be the sort of person that looks at this with rose-colored glasses on and says, oh, it's going to be great. We're really turning things around here. Uh, and, and partly it's because of, of what you noted. American labor law just doesn't work for working people. Democrats had a chance to do something about that in the mid-2000s and failed to do so. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we've seen this utter cratering of support for Democrats amongst uh, non-college-educated working-class people. And and I think it's one of the reasons, you know, we can look at that Supreme Court decision, by the way. You know, there there are three Trump nominees on the Supreme Court, and one of the reasons being Hillary Clinton lost badly amongst working-class people, not only lost amongst working-class white folks who turned away from a Democratic Party that had long since stopped fighting for them, but also saw a dramatic dropout, uh, dropout of the, uh, from the electorate amongst working-class people of color. So don't tell me that it's just because, you know, uh, people didn't uh, like her emails or something like that. This is something that the Democratic Party has to take some ownership over. But back to your point here. We have a moment now where a restive, diverse working class is standing up and fighting for unions. What was in the Employee Free Choice Act has been improved in the PRO Act. It's something that uh, Chuck Schumer ought to put up for a vote once a week in the United States Senate and make sure that everyone knows who's on the side of working people in this country. It's the Democrats who want to deliver for workers in the unions. By the way, Bernie Sanders put forward an amendment the other day in a bill about the semiconductor industry industry being rebuilt here in America. And along with uh, uh, Tammy Baldwin voted with Bernie Sanders on this, they put forward an amendment that said, if you're going to be part of the semiconductor industry rebuild in America with federal tax dollars, you can't fight workers organizing unions. Shockingly, not all Democrats stood with Bernie and Tammy Baldwin. 
we need a Democratic Party that's going to take up this full-throated, wholehearted oh, advocacy. I'm going to take a guess who was bad on that vote. Correct me if I... Do you remember who voted wrong? Well, what I don't recall every single person who voted wrong. What I do know is that this Bernie Sanders amendment was supported by our Tammy Baldwin. Well... Uh, she has an outstanding. Johnson was on the other side. Yeah, so well, of course he was. He's openly <laughs> hostile to labor. Uh, let me guess, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, very well, could have been. I, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, I have, you know, I look for for where did Tammy Baldwin vote on this, and she voted the right way. Not surprising. Yeah. Tammy Baldwin supports workers in their unit. By the way, you know who were the first two people to come out in support of Pap's Theater Group workers organizing. Tammy Baldwin and Mark Pocan. They tweeted about it, actually, and said, hey, yeah, we support these workers in their union. So did all the, uh, the Senate Democratic, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the Democratic Senate candidates in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, Alex Lazary, Sarah Godlewski, Tom Nelson, they all came out in support of them. So did Bernard Sanders, uh, actually, you know, weighing in on something from afar. Because these are the sort of workers that people like them running for office know are going to be the, the shapers of a new Democratic majority, capital D Democratic majority. If the Democratic Party is going to have strength and power and governance anytime in the near future, it's going to be because the Democrats in office and on the campaign trail take up how we rebuild an American labor movement, not just because unions are a special interest group, but because the working class is the majority in this country. And being for the working class, being for how working class people have power, in unions is being supremely democratic. It's building a common good and a democratic society that works for all of us. And I, I think that there's sort of an interesting thing here, Sly. You, you reference, you know, it's not like GM workers, you know, in, in large auto plants. Actually, within the UAW, and this isn't a comment necessarily on the fact that the UAW does not represent any of the transplant auto company workers and has not otherwise uh, organized uh, amongst Tesla workers. Um, this is actually a comment on the changing nature of the American working class. The plurality of members in the UAW these days is actually grad student workers and researchers at academic institutions. Um, and I think that's something that speaks to where the working class is in this country. Mm-hmm. And those of us who fight for the working class need to recognize that whether it's bartenders and baristas, whether it's grad student workers or auto workers or folks in those new semiconductor plants, we have got to fight to bring all of the American working class into a political project to build a democratic society. That means fighting for units. It means fighting for health care by right. It means fighting for living wages and retirement security for every single one of us. And I think that's how the Democratic Party can be in the position then to stop any of these future decisions to come out from a Supreme Court. Because you know how we're going to have nominees on the Supreme Court that will stand full-throatedly, wholeheartedly, full-throatedly with a woman's right to bodily autonomy? It's when we have progressive Democrats in charge of the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, and the presidency. And we ain't ever going to get there unless we win a working-class majority onto our side. So this is not just about delivering for working people, starting with organizing the 60 to 70 workers of the Pabst Theater Group. It's about a political project of a democratic society being put forward by a left of center here that actually gives a rat's behind about winning for working people, not just winning contributions and votes. All right, let me ask you about Starbucks uh, and Amazon. So uh, 
every day I see long lines of cars at the drive-through at Starbucks in very liberal mm. Madison, Wisconsin. Now I don't drink coffee, as you know. Uh, coffee, and, and yet I still talk to you. That's right. Coffee is for grown-ups. Um, let me ask you this: What would you say to the people in line at Starbucks in Madison or Milwaukee or any place else uh, today? What would you say to them? Well. First of all, I'd, I'd ask the Starbucks Workers United campaign, the workers who are leading this effort, what, what should we be saying to the, to the customers here? Because the truth is, workers taking the notion and organizing are the ones who get to decide that. And if you recall, Sly, you asked me before you went to that show, hey, what, sh- what should I do? Should I, should I not go to the show at the mm-hmm. Pabst Theater because right. these workers are hurting? And I said, no, you should absolutely go because that's what the workers want. The workers don't want to boycott. They want you coming to the shows there. Now, if and when the employer engages in uh, a more robust union-busting campaign, well, that, that decision may change. Right now, I think what the Starbucks Workers United campaign is saying is keep on showing up Starbucks customers, but make sure you tell the folks there that you support them forming a union. And I think that's what we've seen with the Colectivo workers uh, here in Milwaukee and in Madison and Chicago. They're doing the same thing. And I, and I think this, this really matters to your slide, because if you've ever been around a union organizing campaign, you know that it's hard for workers to stand up and say, yeah, I'm for the union, because they might feel like they're alone or they're singled out or they don't have uh, you know, the support of people in the workplace and beyond. But what we know, people like you and me, we look at this stuff. We know that 70% of Americans support unions and think workers should have unions, and we need more unions. Now imagine if that 70% were going to these coffee shops, to these entertainment venues, to wherever there's, there's a public exposure of, of customers to workers saying, hey, I'm with you. The majority is with you. In fact, the supermajority is with you. Don't you think workers would feel more emboldened to take on their boss with the knowledge, the confidence that the people who ultimately control the bottom line for that boss are on their side? I absolutely think we'd see more of those public-facing businesses, workers, forming unions. So everybody, go to your local Starbucks, go to your local Colectivo, go wherever workers are organizing and tell them you support them and listen to what workers are saying in these campaigns and follow their lead. Well, so now, right- it might be different for Amazon and Starbucks, but right now what the answer to your question is go to Starbucks, go to Colectivo, tell workers you support them and their union. What are your thoughts about... Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz in his remarks that somehow union workers will end up with less. Well, let's, let's recognize here for a moment that Howard Schultz uh, is a noted turd um, who's always hated unions. Now, uh, now Peter, bowel movements yeah. serve a purpose. <laughs> Howard Schultz. We would all not- get very bad tummy aches if we. <laughs> right. Right. So. Sorry, so I, I think you, America. I think you owe poop an apology. <laughs> uh, Sly, we're making some podcast or radio history here by uh, be issuing this apology. I'm, I am sorry to poop Americans everywhere. If I have hurt your feelings, if you were offended by my comments, I didn't mean to uh, disparage you by linking you with noted jerk Howard Schultz. Now I will not, Sly. I will not apologize to jerks for looping them in together with Howard Schultz, although I sympathize. Are you surprised, though, he's this vituperative? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to call his dropout, but I'm going to use a $10 word. With a- hey, 
words. That right? you can thank right. my English teacher, Mrs. Allen. She'd write a, a new word on the chalkboard every day in English class in high school that we had to look up and figure out what it was. So that was one of my I, favorite. I actually, that was one of my favorite ones. This is the time of teacher appreciation. I want to thank every teacher, by the way. Um, and, and I want to thank the Teachers Union for existing to make it possible for teachers and educators to do their jobs. So, Howard Schultz, uh, for, for your listeners who don't know this, <clears throat> Howard Schultz said something, which is that, oh, Starbucks wants to improve paid benefits. Oh, but it's not going to impact the, the unionized shops. So, what, what he was saying is granting, first of all, holy crap, <laughs> the, the company needs to improve pay and benefits if we're going to stave off the union. It's already showing how much workers are winning just by threatening to unionize. Imagine what workers could win when the whole of the company is organized and Howard Schultz has to sit down across the table with this organized Starbucks workforce. Uh, uh, you know, the possibilities are, are sort of mind-boggling. And so, so Starbucks workers, if you're listening, keep on organizing. Howard Schultz just told you that you're winning. Howard Schultz said, oh, we're going to do this, but it's not going to be for the unionized workplaces. What he's actually saying is American labor law is kind of broken in many ways. But one way that it isn't broken is that where workers have formed a union, when the employer wants to make changes, they got to sit down and negotiate it with the union. And that's to protect workers from having their wages, hours, and working conditions unilaterally altered when they've actually said, no, we, we need to have a collective voice in this thing. But Howard Schultz is, is playing a dirty game here, and I think he's hoping that people don't recognize what he's, what he's up to. He's saying that wages, hours, working conditions, benefits for the unionized workplaces aren't going to improve. But he's skipping a step, which is he could simply go to the union and say, this is something that we are doing across the board. Is that something you could be okay with? Or is there something different that we should bargain over? And the union could very much say, well, we need to bargain a full contract, and we'll get to that. We look forward to negotiating at the table with you in good faith. But uh, for the time being, what you're doing to improve pay and benefits across the board, we're totally okay with. So Howard Schultz is hoping folks don't notice that American labor law says that you know, the workers get to have a say in this kind of thing. And he's skipping that part. It's dirty and it's dangerous for media to allow someone like that to get away with saying this kind of thing. But it's even worse if Starbucks customers allow Howard Schultz to continue to play his anti-union game. This is a billionaire who didn't build the business by doing right by workers. He's done it just the same as every other billionaire has gotten to be where they are by exploiting workers. So I think Starbucks customers should say, hey, our $4.65 per day on a latte that we're drinking, we want it to go not to Howard Schultz's bottom line. We want it to go to paying living wages to these Starbucks baristas. Mm, I, I saw a great quote about Jeff Bezos in a documentary the CBC was running, and that was, uh, nobody earns $75 billion. They steal it from their workers. That, that's absolutely true. That is what profit is. <laughs> profit is money that otherwise would have gone into the wages and benefits and working conditions of the workers who are employed by the business. That, I mean, that's just a fundamental truism. You don't have to be a hardcore, well-studied Marxist to understand that. That's just sort of a basic kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, Jeff Bezos didn't need to go to space. The billions of dollars that paid for him to go to space was sweated from the lives, the very difficult, high-injury working lives of 
folks in the Amazon warehouses and driving the delivery routes. It's the same thing. Howard Schultz's billions were made from the you know incredibly difficult life of the baristas who operate those Starbucks. You know, this is a thing that I think a lot of people are starting to recognize in this wholesale transition to a plurally uh, uh, service sector economy. You know, there's skilled labor in installing uh, a, a sink in a kitchen and doing plumbing work. There's skilled work in the, you know, machining in a factory. But there's also skilled work in mixing drinks and serving them. There's skilled work in cooking food and serving it. And so, you know, I, I think that here we're at a time when people are recognizing baristas and the, the folks who are their customers, just for this example, that, um, you know, unions are for everyone. Unions aren't just for blue-collar white guys in factories and on a building uh, construction worksite. They're for service sector workers, too. And it's a really beautiful thing, Slide, because this is how we're going to rebuild the American middle class, and it's how we're going to do it in a way that embraces the broad diversity of the American working class. And it's how we're going to save our democracy, too, because, you know, an organized working class is always a stronger voice for democracy, protection of individual rights and liberties, as well as a limitation on an authoritarian government. So rebuilding the union movement is about defending our democracy. Defending democratic rights and freedoms is also about empowering everyday, ordinary working people. Peter Rickman, Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. Thanks for coming to Sly's office. It's always my pleasure. As you know, can't wait to come back again, Sly. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.